Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is one-on-one interview with Andrew Cook. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining us today from Bedfordshire in the UK via telephone is author Andrew Cook, whose new book is entitled Jack the Ripper. Joining me today is author Andrew Cook, the author of Ace of Spies, the true story of Sidney Riley, Prince Eddie, the King Britain Never Had, To Kill Rasputin, M, MI5's first spymaster, and the just recently released Jack the Ripper, published by Amberley Press. Up until the release of your book, curious students of the Ripper case have had to get their information via publicity reports that have been appearing in various news outlets in Great Britain and North America. So many of our people who have some questions, and myself included, um, we're conducting this interview with me not having yet read your book, Jack the Ripper. So with that in mind, uh, what were your initial, we'll uh, discuss the cover of your book first, which seems to be currently the, the topic of dis- discussion. What were your initial ideas for the cover, and how do you view the cover of your book and the use of the crime scene photo of Mary Kelly? How does it relate to the content of your book? Um, I think the first point I would make is, is that um, the cover, obviously the publishers, Amberley, are uh, serious history genre publishers. Um, they've got, I think, a well-deserved reputation uh, for publishing scholarly works. And, uh, you know, certainly their uh, motivation, and definitely not mine, is, is to indulge in anything that would smack of commercialism, quite the opposite. And as you'll see from my remarks in a moment, I am personally exceptionally offended by uh, numerous uh, attempts over the years uh, to uh, commercialise this very disturbing subject. Um, If I had to sum up in a few words what the cover is is, is trying to do, uh, I would say that without doubt it is actually saying very clearly, you know, this is a very disturbing uh, series of murders, Uh, it's a very disturbing subject, and I, you know, people, people have the right to be offended by different things. As I say, I, I am offended by uh, how this subject has, has been taken over by commercialism, how it's been taken over and exploited. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, I'm more offended by um, attempts to parody and water down the subject with, with pictures of, of uh, Victorian gentlemen in top hats and red velvet-lined capes with doctors' bags, um, covers smattered with blood. I find this offensive. That's me. I, you know, but I fully accept that other people have a right you know, to be offended by that. But as I say, to me, it's, it's certainly not intended to be offensive. It's intended to make a statement that, uh, I mean, in England, there's a commercial for a, a, something called Ron Seal when it says, you know, it says what it is, it says what it does on the tin. And this is what the book is about. Um, so it's a serious statement, uh, effectively saying that, uh, you know, this is a very serious subject, and it's, it's effectively about how the subject has been exploited, not just at the time in 1888. Um, it was exploited at the time by one particular newspaper, the Star. Um, it was exploited a decade or two later when individuals such as Melville McNaughton, Robert Anderson, Henry Smith, uh, nakedly exploited this disturbing series of crimes to sell their own books. And uh, sadly, it's also been exploited in the last few decades by a small army of modern authors uh, peddling phony and fabricated theories, which 
sadly, I think, is discredited in many ways, uh, you know, this, this, this whole subject. Now, um, publicity for this book states that the series known as the Whitechapel murders are all unrelated and that you dismiss the notion that a serial killer was operating in the East End. Do you, in fact, believe that Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes were killed by different people, or do the current press reports exaggerate the contents of the book? Or is it that... <laughs> uh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Um, I mean, let, 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 let's make one thing clear to start off with, which, is, which I, I think is a point that very few people would actually contest, I hope. And that's the fact that when people talk about the Whitechapel murders, uh, they're talking about... Uh, a series of murders uh, that took place in 1888 and 1889, even the most hardened fanatical that I've met would, would not, for example, say that all of those murders in, in the original police file called the Whitechapel murders were all committed by, by one person. Right. Um, to me, the big debate is over this central issue of what today is called the canonical five. It's not a phrase I like, it's almost a quasi-religious phrase. Um, but uh, that, to me, is the centre of debate. So we're not actually saying um, that, um, I mean, it's not in dispute whether there was one or more killer, because as I say, if you look at the Whitechapel murders, you know, the person who killed Alice McKenzie, Francis Coles, very few people I've ever met would say that's the same person for example, that killed Catherine Eddowes. Uh, the, the person, or more accurately, the people who killed Emma Smith uh, were, were not the same people who killed uh, Mary Kelly. So I think we've almost got uh, an admission by most people that uh, these murders in the police, original police file called the Whitechapel murders were not committed by one person. The issue then is how many killers were there? And I think that, that, that's where the debate kind of hottens up and, 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 and the water's muddy a bit. But do you, do you uh, believe that there was one murderer responsible for at least Nichols, Chapman, and Eddowes? Or, or do you think that maybe those uh, were singular crimes? Mm. I think the operative word is think, because the, 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 the reality is nobody knows and there is no hard and fast evidence to prove that anybody killed those three, let alone anybody else. But what I would say is that, um, you know, Eddowes is, I think, a very, very different set of, of circumstances from Chapman and Nichols. Chapman and Nichols, to me, are the most similar. But uh, I go back to a point I made when we spoke before, which is, you know, draw a parallel between these set of murders and, for example, the Boston Strangler murders in the United States in Massachusetts, in the early 1960s. Uh, initially, those 13 murders looked very, very similar. Many people in the police force argued that they weren't only similar, they were identical, and that therefore one person was responsible for them all. Uh, the media in Massachusetts at the time echoed this. Um, and uh, the modus operandi, the details, the fine minutiae of, of what happened was reported almost daily in the press at the time. And uh, Dr. Percy Clark, uh, Dr. Bagster Phillips in 1888, made a similar argument that, you know, if you actually give this level of detail to people in papers day in, day out, you know, it is going to encourage uh, copycat killing. That is almost certainly what happened in Massachusetts in, in 1962, 63, and 64. Uh, DNA evidence proved that in 2000. Um, sadly, you know, we can't use DNA evidence uh, now, in regard to 1888, I wish we could, 
But my, my firm belief is that uh, a very, very similar scenario uh, existed in 1888 and also with the Boston Strangler murders and indeed other, other theories of alleged serial killings. So, so yeah, that, that's my theory, that's my view. Now, again, the uh, press publicity and the product description on Amazon.com in particular states that, quote, no one has considered the much more likely explanation for Jack's getting away with it, that he never existed. Um, There have been other proposals um, on the possible media cultural creation of Jack the Ripper. Uh, For instance, Al Chisholm's uh, article, Done to Death, The Whitechapel Murders and the Legend of Jack the Ripper, which was also reprinted in Stuart Evans' book, The Lodger, or in the United States, it's called Jack the Ripper, America's First Serial Killer. Um, There's also been Peter Turnbull's The Killer Who Never Was. And so many um, people who are in the the Ripperologist community view your subject, as it's been described in the press, as something that has been previously considered. And indeed, it has been the subject of sustained and heated discussion within the field of Ripperology for many years. Um, um, you, when I talk about no one, I'm not actually talking about um, writers uh, such as uh, Alex Chisholm and Peter Turnbull, who incidentally I think should have been given medals for bravery for actually coming out and going against the grain in what they said uh, at the time. Um, when I talk about no one, I'm not talking about authors or researchers. I'm talking about the general public, because after all, this is who my book is directed towards. Now, as I say, I'm not somebody who's obsessed by this subject. I'm not somebody who goes on message boards. I'm not somebody who's got, you know, rooms full of books about Ripper murders. I have studied it in great detail, but my, my book is directed to the general public. And when I speak to the general public, and I, I speak to an awful lot of people every day in a whole host of different settings, as I'm sure a lot of people do, and when you talk to them about Jack Ripper, I've not yet met one single ordinary member of the public who believes or was even aware of the theory or the view that, uh, you know, these gruesome murders were not carried out by more than one person or there is a view and a theory uh, to counter that. Um, most people's received view on Jack the Ripper, I believe, uh, is from films, is, is from sensationalist books, um, and, uh, and, and essentially nobody can blame the general public for their, for their views about this issue bearing in mind where they picked up their, their information from. So when, when, when we talk about nobody has considered, etc., etc., we're not talking about researchers and academics, because, yes, they have, um, or rather a few have, a, a tiny drop in the ocean, I might add. But, yes, those you know, brave individuals that you mentioned have indeed voiced that view. But, you know, I'm not talking about them. When I say no one has considered, I'm talking about the general public. Um, and I'd also say that, yes, you're absolutely right about what you say about uh, those individuals, but, again, the whole point of my book, or one of the main points of my book, is to actually say, because I'm not really articulating my own views in this book, as anyone will see when they actually get to read it, I'm actually giving a voice to people who, A, never got uh, the opportunity to express their views to a general public at the time, i.e. people who, uh, who weren't old Etonian police officers, uh, people who were actually policemen on, on the street investigating at the time, people like Percy Clark and Bagster Phillips, who thought, quite rightly in my opinion, that it was their professional duty not to go around talking about these things. Um, because, again, a little bit like you mentioned Rasputin earlier. 
you know, one of the things I mentioned in my Rasputin book is 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 the view uh, that uh, the British uh, Secret Service were involved in Rasputin's murder. Now, that's not some sort of hokey theory I came up with. In fact, it was it was actually the original theory and the original view that was being discussed on the streets in Russia within hours of Rasputin's murder and the discovery of his body. Same here. Um, what, you know, what I'm articulating here isn't something I dreamt up one night a few years ago. It's something that was being said by people like, uh, like Superintendent Thomas Arnold, like uh, Dr. Percy Clark. So, so no, I, I'm, not claiming, I'm not claiming the credit for these views at all. I'm articulating the original, in my view, the original views, the original theories. Uh, and yes, as you say, Alex Chisholm, Peter Turnbull have done sterling work in going against the grain very bravely, you know, since then in the 20th century. But, uh, you know, that, 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 that's essentially what, uh, what, what I'm trying to say in the book. And, and, and as I say, I come back to the point that when we're talking about no one is considered, we're not talking about academics and researchers, we're talking about the general public. Okay, and you mentioned per- Percy Clark and, um, and the, in the Times article uh, that came out on May 1st, uh, it refers to the forgotten account of Percy Clark. Is, is that uh, kind of uh, the same kind of answer that you would give to that? Are you referring to the East London Observer article in 1910? Or were you able to um, find out new information uh, of Percy Clark that will be revealed for the first time in your book? Um, so, so, some of it was indeed articulated by him in, um, in, in that 1910 uh, newspaper article. And, and again, as you rightly said earlier, um, you know, credit should go to that, to... Uh, uh, Stuart Evans and his co-author in, in, in 1999. I think they were the first people who, who discovered that. Um, one of the things that I always try and do, not just in this book, but in the other five books that you mentioned, is uh, I, I don't like relying on secondary evidence. You know, it goes against the grain a bit. I, I like to go right back to square one and deal with primary evidence. And one of the best ways you can do that, yes, you can make a beeline for the local archive or whatever. But um, one thing I always try and do is to try and trace as many people as possible who are descendants, direct descendants, of the people uh, involved in, 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 in the story and those set of events. It's not always easy. In fact, it's the hardest thing I find in any research for a book, actually tracking people down. Um, the other thing I would say about the book, and I think we'll come back to this in a moment, because I think it's one of your later questions, um, I mean, this book um, I wrote um, basically in conjunction with research for a television documentary and I, I think without doubt it was one of the hardest tasks I've ever had because uh, I basically had to write this book within three months. Uh, normally I spend at least a year uh, writing a book. I spend maybe a couple of years researching it and about a year physically sitting there hammering out the words. This time I had to, I had to concertina it all into about three months. Um, now one of the uh, sort of key things was Percy Clark, but that literally came in the last week of writing the book. Um, so, uh, yes, I think there is, there, there's without doubt new material in there. I mean, one of the most interesting to me, and I'll, I'll use this as an example, um, Percy Clark lived uh, very close to Cavendish Square, and uh, for people who, who are familiar with London and know London, uh, Cavendish Square is in the west end of London, and um, literally within that square, it, it seems that Percy Clark was a neighbour of two other very key medical uh, professionals, uh, Sir James Risdon Bennett 
who was a former president of the Royal uh, uh, College of Physicians, and Dr. George Savage, and indeed a couple of other people. And it seems to me, from uh, Clark's uh, collection, and he collected a lot of press cuttings, he collected papers and views, but uh, it almost seems that these, these guys were meeting on a regular basis and uh, professionally chewing over uh, theories and views as, as these killings happened. So I think that, that without doubt, is a, new, a, a doubt is a new development. Um, but as you rightly say, you know, um, Clark first came to the attention of, of, of those interested in the subject through um, the book in 1999. But to my knowledge, that's the only book out of a whole library of books that have been written about the subject where Clark even gets a mention. So, um, so yeah, he is a very important character. And as I say, I go back to the point... I made a moment or two ago that, you know, in many ways, this is all about giving voice to theories, views, and individuals that expressed them right back in 1888. It's not coming up with some new, fluky, concocted view in, you know, 2008, 2009. It's articulating what I would argue was the original deeply held view by people who were around at the time. Okay. Um, now, as far as the idea that the London newspaper journalists hyped their coverage of the Whitechapel murders in order to sell more newspapers and crossed the line into highly unethical and potentially criminal acts by deliberately sending hoax letters to the police purporting to be from the murderer, are you aware if these penny aligners were really paid that way by the line? Or what would the profit motive be for a journalist to write hoax letters to the police? Um, <clears throat> I think without doubt the, the, the motive was, was, was higher up the food chain than that. You, you, you've got to consider several issues really pertaining to uh, the Star newspaper. Now, in, in my book, I actually go into uh, detail in terms of how the Star came to be created in the first place um, by some uh, well-placed, wealthy, liberal, liberal individuals um, but more importantly, I think the key character here is a guy called T.P. O'Connor, who was an Irish nationalist member of Parliament, or at least he said he was an Irish nationalist member of Parliament. Later on, you know, it, it, it came out that uh, he was no more of an Irish nationalist than, than anybody else. But, you know, what happened in early 1888 was that uh, this new liberal radical evening paper came out, um, and it, it had to consolidate itself very, very quickly. And um, O'Connor um, was basically someone who wasn't new to fabrication. He'd worked for a number of papers before. He'd got a very, uh, I'd say, very solid uh, reputation in terms of journalistic ethics. He was a member of the House of Commons. He'd got himself a reputation for, I, I think in America, it's probably the same system that when senators and congressmen need to vote, um, a bell is rung in outer buildings and so on to, to get them all in to vote. Um, O'Connor, um, one, of, one of his little tricks was to actually cut the wires so that uh, conservative uh, members of parliament in a certain building wouldn't know there was a division on. But there's a countless examples of, of, of his chicanery, if you like. But um, essentially what happened was that uh, when uh, Emma Smith was murdered, um, yes, there was, there was a small write-up in the paper. When Martha Padram was murdered, there was a, a write-up in the paper, not a particularly big write-up in the paper, bigger than the Emma Smith write-up. But by the time you get to uh, the, uh, the Nichols murder, O'Connor makes the decision, uh, and he's the first person who comes out with it in a big story, that uh, this uh, latest killing is not only a disturbing killing, which it was, 
it's one person and it's the third in the sequence. And he says very clearly, or rather Ernest Park, who wrote the article, uh, says very clearly that uh, Emma Smith, Martha Tabram, um, Polly Nichols, three victims of the same person. And from that moment on, the story combusts, because what actually happens is that other newspapers who, to that point in time, have, have been pursuing different angles. Some, for example, have been saying that uh, at random, others have been saying that it's the work of an extortion gang, whatever. As soon as they see the star story take off, as soon as they see the star circulation figures um, start, uh, start, you know, effectively taking off, virtually all of them jump on the bandwagon. So it, it's basically T.P. O'Connor, Ernest Park, launch this story about one killer, a serial killer. They don't actually use the term serial killer. I think that's more of a, a latter-day um, latter phrase. But, but they're the people, without doubt, who start this story. Um, we mentioned before that leather apron. I mean, that's another gift to circulation figures. As soon as this sort of bogeyman leather apron appears in the story, and the star actually take leather apron and run with that story to, to the nth extent, um, when Pizer is arrested um, and uh, is released within 24 hours, the uh, circulation figures of the star are punctured like a balloon. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and then they're faced with the possibility of being sued by Pizer because they've virtually accused the guy of, 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 uh, of, of killing three or four women. Um, they then have to come up with, if they wish to reflect this story, um, which incidentally has made them the biggest national-selling evening paper in Britain, let alone London, um, they, 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 they need to do something pretty, pretty dramatic, and that, that's what they do. Yeah, this um, leads into two questions that were submitted by Paul Begg. Mm. And he asks, um, why you make no mention of Lincoln Springfield's claim that the leather apron story was invented or worked up by American Harry Dam, and if anyone on the star was responsible for Dear Boss, it would have been Dam. And then he goes on to ask, um, and this is relating to your comments about O'Connor, would it not also be fair to say that as murders were infrequent in the East End, two or three brutal deaths within a space of a month would have led any socially conscious journalist, as the radical pressmen working for O'Connor presumably were, to think that a single killer was at large? Could it not be argued that the Star was simply more aware than other newspapers that the idea of a lone killer need, and that the idea of a lone killer need not to have been consciously invented to increase sales? I can't agree with that, um, and I can't agree with the fact that um, I mean, when people talk about um, the murder rate and the number of murders, they're talking about reported murders. They're not talking about unreported murders. Um, so, you know, the murder rate at that time in that area, and in London in general, was a lot higher than the, the statistics actually indicate, because as I say, an awful lot of murders simply weren't reported. But that, that, that's a bias issue. Um, as I say, Paul Begg's um, question about um, Frederick Best and, and, and uh, Lincoln Springfield and so on, um, I think they're actually very well answered in, um, in, in Stuart Evans and Donald Rumbelow's book, um, uh, Scotland Yard investigates and, and letters from hell. So I, you know, I won't repeat that because I think you know he is fully aware of what uh, what they say, and I, I fully endorse that. Um, but uh, as I say, one of the advantages that I, I've had is actually being able to access um, documents, letters on the Star and the Star's journalists, what the Star was doing, what the proprietors were saying, what the editor was saying. 
And, uh, you know, having looked at that, you know, my conclusions are very firm and I actually say them very clearly in my book. Um, from what you said earlier, you know, I think Paul Begg did request a copy of the book from the publishers and, you know, I take it as read that he's read the book page, page for page. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, that effectively is, 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 is the answer, I believe. Okay. And back to um, the, the, the story of the uh, press invention. Um, as you know, Robert Anderson later wrote um, in his memoirs that the sensation mongers of the newspaper press fostered the belief that life in London was no longer safe and that no women ought to venture abroad in the streets after nightfall. And one enterprising journalist went as far as to impersonate the cause of all this terror as Jack the Ripper, a name by which he will probably go down in history. Now that comment seems to tally with some of uh, what you've written in your new book, yet Anderson is also on record clearly believing that a serial killer existed in the East End, and that person was eventually captured and caged in an asylum. Would you like to comment on that? I would indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I think the whole issue of Sir Robert Anderson is a very interesting one. And I, I go back to my earlier comment um, in terms of um, McNaughton, Anderson, and Henry Smith, who I think uh, bear a very large responsibility for muddying and distorting the waters of, uh, of, of this case in, in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, I mean, I've heard a number of people say in the past that, uh, you know, how reliable Sir Robert Anderson is. Um, I mean, as you rightly said, in terms of previous books I've written, I mean, I, I am, I, I guess, uh, at the end of the day, in terms of what I've written and researched and my background, I'm, I'm an intelligence historian. An awful lot of the work I've done has been on um, secret intelligence service, security service, etc., etc. And uh, I did quite a lot of work some years ago on Sir Robert Anderson in the context of uh, his, his career, if that's the right way of putting it, um, in um, anti-Republican Irish um, uh, intelligence work. Um, now, you know, several things need to be said. Uh, I think the first one is, is that um, at the time, in 1888, Sir Robert Anderson certainly didn't hold the views that uh, he used to spice up his 1910 book. And uh, when that book came out, as I'm sure many people know, um, Edmund Reed, uh, former Inspector Edmund Reed, was one of the first people to come out with incredulity and say, well, you know, what the hell is Anderson talking about? You know, um, saying that um, the killer was a Jew, saying that, um, you know, he's caged in an asylum. Uh, this is utter nonsense. Anybody who actually was involved in the case at the time knows this is absolute nonsense. You can take different views about, uh, about Anderson, some people have said rather charitably that by the time he came to write these books and articles in the press, you know, he was getting on in years and, you know, you, you had to forgive him for making a few errors. Um, you can also turn it around and say, well, hold on a minute, you know, he was nakedly trying to exploit this story to sell his books. Um, you know, that theory itself is, is riddled with holes. I mean, one, one of the things I deliberately don't do in my book is go into this, this mind-numbing, um, process of, 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 of trying to point the finger at people because, as I say, you know, to me there is no evidence. Um, Edmund Reed said it, Percy Clark said it, a number of people at the time said there is not a shred of evidence to point to anybody. And anybody like, whether it be Sir Robert Anderson a, a, a century ago or whether it be somebody today who's peddling books saying it was this person, it was that person, it's intellectual nonsense to say that and that, that's a temptation that I'm very deliberately steered away from. I think the last thing I'd say about Sir Robert, and Sir Robert Anderson at this juncture is that everything I know about him in terms of his uh, methods, 
his uh, his approach and uh, you know basically his his definition of, uh, of of honesty and integrity is that I wouldn't really take take the time of day from him. Um, you know the, the the way he conducted himself and conducted a campaign in Ireland and Britain, uh, political matters in terms of special branch and the secret service. Not not a man I would say with a shred of integrity. He might have been a very effective uh, and, and anti-Fenian uh, intelligence officer. But, you know, he, he was a man who believed, believed the truth was a commodity that could be uh, thrown away at, at, at a whim as long as the end justified the means. And in the same way, when he comes to write his book in 1910, you know, I need a lot of convincing that, that, that uh, what he's saying and what he's doing is, 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 is based on anything more admirable or, 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 or more, has more integrity than, than, you know, what he was doing 30, 40 years before in Ireland. Now, in your previous book, M., um, about um, William Melville, um, you mentioned Tumblety and um, Little Child, as we all know, uh, in a private letter, uh, referred to Tumblety as a very likely suspect. Uh, so, would you? Um, but but then Little Child goes on and, and kind of argues against Tumblety being uh, a, uh, the main killer. Um, would you? But nevertheless, would you rate? Uh, private correspondence like uh, uh, Little Child's comments and maybe the Naughton Memoranda um, as more credible information than, than something like Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs then? I think without doubt um, what people write um, uh, in the context of private correspondence, albeit the fact that uh, the Little Child letter was written a good number of years after Little Child retired, obviously has a great deal more Credibility again. It's, it's like some of the material I came across uh, in, in in the Rasputin research that I did. A number of intelligence officers' papers that I came across. They had written down recollections uh, and records of what uh, what had happened at the time. But there was no way in the world they ever intended those papers and documents to see the light of day. There was no way that what they had written were effectively drafts for a memoir or anything like that. In, in, in fact, uh, as I say, that went very much against their code of ethics, ever to breathe a word uh, of, of what, has, what has happened to them and what they've been involved in. Um, but certainly, yes, you're, you're right. Um, you know, private correspondence of that kind has to be taken a hell of a lot more seriously and viewed with a lot more integrity than something that uh, somebody has written uh, in, a, in a memoir a, many, many years after the event, and, and secondly, on the basis that, uh, you know, mem memoirs uh, need to be sold. Yeah, I thought you had covered the uh, Tabram, Stride. I, I thought the reason I didn't ask the Tabram and Stride and Kelly question was I thought that you had covered that in your discussion of, of just how you view uh, the murders in general. But <clears throat> feel, feel free... To the three that you mentioned, I mean, yes. Mar Martha Tabram, although, although um, in, in my view, Melville McNaughton as an individual and what he's written, is, is, I, I, I'm somewhat skeptical about, um, I do actually um, endorse what, um, what uh, Melville McNaughton said uh, about Martha Tabram in his famous 1894 uh, memorandum, um, basically that, um, you know, it was an unconnected. Uh, murder, but it was more than likely um, it was more than likely um, a soldier client that she was last seen with, and that um, a friend of hers um, refused to identify 
or was reluctant to identify uh, the individual who was seen with her. Um, I think as well, McNaughton, people often misquote McNaughton, although as I say, I don't believe that what, what he says is the most reliable. Um, but, you know, people do misquote him, in particular with regard to, um, you know, the old names that keep coming up, like Druitt and um, Kosminski and so on. I mean, McNaughton never uses the word suspect at all in, in, uh, in, in his memorandum. Um, he actually said, because as, as most people listening to this, I'm sure will know, it was written in response um, to um, some publicity that was actually written by our old friend T.P. O'Connor, who by the time the memorandum was written uh, had been sacked effectively by the Star, that now uh, re-emerged as editor of another newspaper called The Sun, which spent five whole days um, front-paging even, even crazier Jack the Ripper stories about a guy called Cutbush. And um, uh, Drew, um, Melville McNaughton actually says that, um, you know, very unlikely that, you know, Cutbush is anything whatsoever to do with this, but uh, three people, um, there are at least three people who would have been more likely than Cutbush. I don't think they were suspects, uh, it just means they were more likely. In fact, I would argue 99% of London and the wider world would have been more more likely than, than, than Cutbush. But, but um, you know, that, 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 that's essentially, you know, the, the, the point about Tabram. As I say, uh, Elizabeth Stride, I think, is one of, is, is, is one of the more clear-cut ones, um, and I'm quite happy to just ba basically touch on some of the issues there. Um, for example, Dr. Baxter Phillips um, concluded, and um, he more or less said at the inquest that he didn't think the two, the two murders were carried out by the same person. Um, he referred in particular to the fact that the knife used to kill Stride was a rounded knife, which was, was somewhat different to, uh, the knife that had been used on the previous victim and was indeed different from the knife that was used um, on Catherine Eddowes. Um, the, the critical thing, I think, with, with Elizabeth Stride is this issue about, you know, the old theory about the disturbed uh, being disturbed, which I, I, I've never accepted. Um, to me, um, the assault was witnessed beginning at uh, 12.45 and the body was found at 1. Uh, I certainly don't accept the theory that the killer would have committed more, more uh, atrocities if, if he had been given more time. To me, the throat was simply cut and the killer, walk, killer walked away. Um, 15 minutes is a very long time. And uh, as I say, I think this is a point that's been made you know, very, very well by many other people, including Stuart Evans and, and, and so forth. Um, so again, it's not a new theory, but it's, it's, a very, it's a very compelling one as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, I don't believe that the killer was Jewish. I think that's a complete nonsense. Um, in fact, um, certainly the killer of Elizabeth Stride, I, I, I don't believe, was Jewish by the simple fact that um, uh, when uh, the assault was, was witnessed at uh, 12.45, uh, the killer, or the person I believe was the killer, shouted a Jewish and anti-Semitic insult across the street. Um, he, he shouted Lipsky, which was, uh, as I say, an anti-Semitic insult at the time. So I can't, I can't believe that uh, a, a Jew would have, would have shouted an, uh, an anti-Semitic insult across the street. So there, there, there are lot, lots of issues there. I, I do do my best in the book to cover that. But, you know, I, I'd say one thing about my book and, and about the documentary, because in the TV documentary, um, initially um, the documentary was trying to do two things. It was pursuing this issue about media fabrication, and it was also pursuing the issue about, you know, was one killer responsible? Um, at the end of the day, I believe the program deliberately lent more in the direction of the media fabrication event, 
but um, in, in, and, and again, my book is, is, is more about that than it is this issue about, you know, one killer, two killers, three killers, four killers, five. It's more concerned with this, with this issue of exploitation, commercial exploitation through the Star newspaper. So, so really, that, that sort of pulls together a number, a number of the points that you had um, asked me about before. Right, right. <clears throat> um, now, when does this uh, television show air? It's, uh, it was provisionally penciled in for late May, but I, now, I believe that it's now been definitely scheduled for 8 p.m. on Tuesday the 9th of June on Channel 5, uh, which is an English uh, channel. Um, so that, that's definite now, as far as I know, the 9th of June. Okay. Um, now, lastly, um, I, uh, if you would be so kind as to tell us a little about, bit about yourself and, and what, what are your main historical interests. And I do note a recurring theme in your books, as you mentioned earlier, is the special branch. And i also like to know what role, if any, do you believe that the special branch played in the Whitechapel murder investigation? Yeah. I mean, yes, I mean, Special Branch has, has cropped up in previous books, although having said that, the first book I wrote on Sidney Riley, I think Special Branch is probably mentioned on about three pages. It certainly crops up in a bigger way, obviously, with a book on William Melville, um, because Melville, uh, as you know, was, was head of Special Branch uh, for the best part of a decade. Um, Special Branch doesn't crop up at all in my books on Rasputin or Prince Eddie, uh, and it crops up, in the, again, in a very, very marginal way in my last book, which was about the Cash Ronners scandal in England. That's the original Cash Ronners scandal in the 1920s, not the one that involves the Blair government a couple of years back. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, special, special Branch I have discussed before, but I, I, I don't really think it's a, it's a major theme. It, as I say, it certainly cropped up in, in two of the books. Um, I suppose if, if, if I'm looking at a particular interest, yes, um, you know, intelligence history is really where I started. Um, and uh, Rasputin, for example, came out of the research that I was doing for Sidney Riley, as indeed did William Melville. Um, the interest in Prince Eddie was actually something that I'd written quite some time before Riley, but um, after the success of the first couple of books, um, the, the publishers were eager for something else, and, and effectively what I did was to, uh, was to present, as I say, the, uh, the manuscript I'd done on Prince Eddie and really update it and, um, and, and uh, put some supplemental information on there that arose as a result of my involvement in a TV documentary about uh, Prince Eddie. So, um, yeah, it, it, that, 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 that's really my kind of background. Um, See, what, what, one of the things, as I say, that, that has often motivated me is, is this issue of um, how stories become distorted, um, how the historical record becomes uh, distorted. Um, and again, I think Sidney Riley, uh, and I don't know how many people listening to this know about Sidney Riley, um, he was the subject of a, I think, a really well-made drama starring Sam Neill in the 1980s called Riley Ace of Spies. But when I read a couple of books about Sidney Riley, um, I was just intrigued by, they almost seemed to be talking about different people. And when I started to investigate the subject and research it, I found a whole host of distortion, fabrication, whatever. And I, I was really just motivated to try and peel back all those layers and, and really to get, get down to the bedrock of, of, of what I hoped would be a reasonably accurate you know, reflection of, of who he really was. And I, I, I think that's the kind of thing that does intrigue me. And I think anybody who 
you know, spends a couple of years researching and writing a book, has to have something that drives them. And to me, as I say, it, it, it's trying to peel back, you know, the myth and the nonsense and, and, and really get down to brass tacks and, and find out, um, you know, the truth about things. I mean, again, one of the common denominators here, uh, a guy called Donald McCormick, who I'm sure a number of people listening to this will have heard his name, um, you know, he was one of the worst examples and most dishonest examples of, of a writer. You know, he fabricated material. He didn't even fabricate it very well, you know. And I, it just staggers me how, you know, things that he said and wrote even now I hear them repeated as gospel and, you know, it, it, it's really trying to get, get to the bottom of things like that that, um, that motivate me, I suppose. Okay. Um, did I cover all the questions? Do you think? I think so, yes. And I hope, hope I've covered most of the answers. I've, I've tried to anyway. And as I say, um, the, the, the detail is, is obviously in my book. Um, as I say, I think, you know, a good way to end is how we started, which is you know, with regard to the cover, um, as I say, I, I think that um, with regard to the cover, it's certainly not intended to offend, and I'm obviously sorry if anyone is offended by it, but, you know, it, it, it's a genuine statement in terms of, you know, this is about a disturbing crime or crimes. It, I, I don't want it parodied. I, I don't want it sort of sugar-coated. I think people should actually see it the way it is. I'm offended, as I said to you on another occasion, by Jack the Ripper board games, Jack the Ripper trivia. I'm extremely disturbed by the way this nasty set of murders has almost become, as I say, like a, a sort of a, a, I don't know, it's a, it has become a parody. Um, and uh, as I say, I, I find that more disturbing than any image. It's arguable, actually, whether this image and indeed other images should ever have been published in the first place. Um, you know, I mean, I don't read, uh, I must admit, um, these things like Ripperologist and whatever, but um, somebody I know told me the other day that um, I think Ripperologist had published mortuary photos on the front cover once. I don't know when that was. Um, somebody said they'd seen it once. But to me, the principle is you either don't do it at all or you do. And if you do do it, you have to do it for the right reasons. And as I say, you know, the last reason on earth I'd ever do a thing like that is to sell books. That's never been my motivation. As I said to you in a previous conversation, you know, I, I, I've, in fact, since we spoke before, I've had a whole host of emails, invitations to speak on this, to address that, and, you know, we'll give you so much money. I've said, look, I'm not interested. You know, I, I've written this book to make a statement. I've not written this book to make money. I've not written this book so I can go and speak to umpteen meetings and get speakers' fees. I'm not interested in that. That is not what motivates me. I've, I've got no... No disrespect to anyone else who does that. Everybody has the right to do that if they wish to, but I don't. And, you know, I'm certainly, certainly not wishing to exploit this subject in any way at all. In fact, as I say, my book is a, hopefully a very powerful statement against the exploitation of this subject and indeed the victims who, who, who you know, have become a forgotten, almost a forgotten element in this whole story. Well, um, I thank you for deciding to come on our show and and speak about these topics and i do look forward to reading your book and that, that, that's wonderful and as i say you know any, any thoughts you know that or questions that you have you know as a result of reading it you know i'd be more than happy to uh to answer them but i i hope the book speaks for itself because i think that's the whole point in writing a book really to, to actually have an opportunity a, a canvas if you like to put down your views and opinions and, uh, you know, that's what I've tried very hard to do. 
Okay. Well, uh, again, Andrew, uh, thanks for joining us today. That's my pleasure. It's one-on-one with Andrew Cook. I want to thank again author Andrew Cook for being on the show today. His book is Jack the Ripper, available now at your local bookstore. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at the website www.casebook.org slash podcasts. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of our guests or participants on the Rippercast, feel free to email us. Our email address has changed. It is now rippercast at gmail.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week.